If you're an On Being listener, you know that I'm on the road a lot, recording interviews and speaking in front of live audiences all over the place. In March, on the 15th, I'll be hosting a night of selected shorts at Symphony Space in New York. And on March 24th and 25th, I'm recording two live events with Citizen University in Seattle. Find out more at onbeing.org slash events. This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Margaret Wertheim. Download the MP3 of our produced show at onbeing.org. Tonight is the really a special program. Krista Tippett is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster and New York Times best-selling author. As the creator and host of Public Radio's On Being, she takes up the great animating questions of human life. What does it like to be human? How do we want to live? Krista and her guests reach beyond the headlines to explore meaning, faith, and ethics amidst the political, economic, and cultural and technological shifts of the 21st century. Her guest this evening is Margaret Wertheim, a science writer and the co-creator with her twin sister, of Christ, uh, Chris, her twin sister Christine, of the hyperbolic crochet coral reef project. Perhaps the most popular art and science endeavor on the planet, with more than three million visitors, the project recreates coral reef creatures using a crochet technique invented by a mathematician. Tracing a line from sea slugs to general relativity and ocean acidification, Wertheim asserts that this nexus of art and science may encourage a shift in consciousness about humanity's role in the ecological future of our planet. Her TED Talk about the project has been viewed by more than a million times and translated into 20 languages. Wertheim is also the director of the Institute for Figuring, a Los Angeles nonprofit she founded with her sister to promote public engagement with the aesthetic and poetic dimensions of science and mathematics. Through the IFF, Wertheim has created exhibitions and participatory art and science programs all over the world. She's involved in two upcoming projects in Minneapolis, and you can join in the world's largest participatory art and science project. Check out our website for more information on how to be involved in the Crochet Coral Reef Project. The Crochet Coral Reef combines mathematics, marine biology, environmental consciousness raising, and community art practice. The work created in Minneapolis will be on view at the Mississippi Watershed Management Organization in Northeast Minneapolis, which is near Lowry on the east bank of the Mississippi River. Her work will also be on view in our summer exhibition, Leonardo da Vinci, The Codex Lester and the Creative Mind. Engineer, inventor, scientist, and artist, Leonardo da Vinci was an exemplar of the innovative mind. He used his vast intellect, his powers of observation, and boundless curiosity to explore the world around him. This exhibition presents one of Leonardo's original notebooks, the most vital tool in his creative process, and it explores how his interdisciplinary Renaissance thinking is shared by some of today's most visionary artists, engineers, and designers. When this exhibit opens on June 21st, 
I believe you will see for yourself the connections between Leonardo and Margaret Wertheim's approach to the natural world and their eye for the creative process. She is one of the 21st century um, designers that will be included in the exhibition. And with that, I let us welcome Krista Tippett and Margaret Wertheim to the stage. Thank you also for your patience. We are recording this for a broadcast on the radio probably next summer sometime. And so that's why we can't allow any late seating once we start. So if those of you in the back could find a seat. And and I'm sorry to say that if you leave, there is no re-entry because it's so noisy it shows up on the tape. And now for this evening, I turn it over to Krista. Thank you. It's so lovely to be back at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts uh, and to be here with Margaret Wertheim. Oh, is that how you say your name? I had yes. Wertheim. All right. Um, I, and I couldn't hear everything from back here, so if I'm repeating, please forgive me. We will have a conversation up here for about 45, 50 minutes, and then we'll open it up. We'll open the conversation up to you and have some questions and answers, uh, and then we'll come back up here to finish, and I need, where's my, where's a clock? We didn't talk about this. Is there a, okay, can I have a watch then? I need a. You want my watch? Yes, any watch will do. (laughs) Um, It doesn't sit flat on the table, is that? I just need a watch then. Yeah. This is one uh, problem with the fact that we all tell time with our phones these mm. days, you know, mm. you just don't want to pull out a phone in a meeting mm. or in a mm. live event. Um, okay. So I'm, we're just going to plunge in and, um, and we will, we are recording this for the show. And, uh, I've, I've had a, just a delightful time immersing in Margaret's writing and also, uh, the visuals of what she's working on now. Um, I'm also very mindful that many of you haven't seen it, and also, more critically, this is radio, so none (laughs) of the listening audience will have seen it. So um, this gives us an opportunity to to also delve into that visual side of the spoken word, and and so we'll have some fun with that. Um, Margaret, you know, I always start my conversations by wondering about the spiritual background of someone's early life. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me from reading about you that you were raised Catholic, um, but also that your, your mother um, was such an important presence and that she communicated Catholicism, but much mm-hmm. else that one might call spiritual formation. Y- yes, my, my mother was raised a very, very strict Catholic and to show you how strictly she had six children in five and a half years. <laughs> because in the early 1960s in Australia, you couldn't remain in the Catholic Church and go on the pill. Oh, my gosh. So in 1964, after the birth of her sixth child, she decided that even God couldn't want her to have any more children so quickly. So she decided to go on the pill and that meant leaving the church. 
But so my parents left the church when I was relatively young, but I feel that my mother's Catholicism has been one of the greatest and deepest influences on everything I do. Hmm. And she became really something of a social activist. Yes. My mother had a career um, after I after she raised us children when I was in high school she started working again and she had a career working in affirmative action what in Australia we called equal employment opportunity working on behalf of improving working conditions for women and racial minorities and one of the things that she did in her career was to help open some of the first women's refuges in Australia and she regards this as a complete continuation of her Catholic upbringing. So the, the Catholicism that I was brought up with was like Mary Day Catholicism. It was mm. basically believing that we, ha- we all have a moral mission on earth to try to make things better for people less fortunate than ourselves. It's, you know, the mendicant Franciscan tradition. And although I'm by no means a practicing Catholic anymore, I believe that Catholicism then in, in some sense in my heart, I will always be a Catholic because of that social justice issue that I got from my mum. Hmm. And you are also, you are an identical twin, is that right? Yes. So I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll weave in, in and out of this, but I mean, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, one of the questions you're always teasing out of the interaction between science and culture is this question of the self and the reality of the self. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just wonder, um, how you reflect on how being an identical twin maybe primed you to be attentive to that distinctively, that matter, the meaning of the self. It's very insightful of you, Krista, because I think the experience of being an identical twin is the primary experience of my life. Um, It's, I always say to people, it's like being married from the moment of conception with no possibility of divorce (laughs) and my sister Christine uh, has led in some ways a very different life to me we spent the first 16 17 years of our life never being separated ever for more than 36 hours but after we left high school I went to university and studied physics and mathematics and she went to art school and we both feel that we've had the opportunity to live two lives. So through her, I've learned about art, and through mm. me, she's learned about science. And the funny thing to me is that most people's fantasy of having an identical twin is that you get to have someone who lives the same life as you, but Christine and I believe the real value of it is that you actually get to live two lives. Mm. Well, that's so interesting, um, because I feel like you where where you've come in your career is very creative and actually you're now working with Christine mm-hmm. um, creatively merging science mm-hmm. and the arts uh, in a but in a very 21st century way um, and you got there by traversing some of the great questions of science and life in our time um, you you talk about always being um, always being, uh, what did you say, um, fascinated, that you, you sensed that, you were fascinated with physics when you first heard about it before you really understood it. 
you had an early love of mathematics. You always got math um, and an obsession with space. And then you studied physics. Mm-hmm. Um, and was your was your fa- how was your fascination then, um, you know, expanded and and how, what kind of definition did it take on in that actually delving in? You mean when I was a child, when or studied, when I was a, no, you, when you finally then uh, studied physics? Well, I think as a little child, I was obsessed with the question of how mathematical concepts seem to appear in nature. Mm. So I can remember when I was maybe six or seven, lying on the grass and staring up at the sun, and we just had a lesson um, at school about pi, the number embedded in circles. So circles in some sense is defined by the concept of pi. And I thought, is pi real? What does it mean that there's this sort of mystical number at the heart of the sun or a hubcap or any circular thing that you see? And when I went to university and studied physics, physics is the science that tries to articulate mathematical descriptions of the world or to tease out the mathematics that somehow is valuable descriptively. And the more you study physics, the more astounding are the examples of that. So you see more and more when you study um, science at a university level that math is everywhere in the world. And how do we interpret that? What is the meaning of the fact that there are these incredibly complex equations that describe phenomena like lasers and that, therefore, the understanding of those equations then leads us to have technologies like microchips. And I think it's the great philosophical question that I want to understand in my life. What does it mean that the math is in the world in some sense? Hmm. And I wonder if you would just start to tell a bit of the story of the development of physics, the history of science, but Mm -hmm. the development of physics in particular, and how it uh, kind of met that question and then, you know, has taken it to extremes. Mm -hmm. um, Because it it seems to me that, you know, behind the the way you just talked about, you know, that, that puzzle is... And I think you've said this in places that the that the ultimate question that's driven you is what is reality and what is the language we use to describe reality, and which articulations of reality are taken seriously, and how mm-hmm. that also changes across time. Um, and it seems, and you know, your your telling of the history of science, um, which you did especially in your first book, Pythagoras Trousers. Um, is this long encounter with and, and constant revision of, of um, that question? Well, m- my first book, which is called Pythagoras's Trousers, is basically a cultural history of physics that focuses on the historical relationship between physics and religion. And the book really shows that the fact that you have people like Stephen Hawking and Paul Davies talking about the mind of God, these physicists talking about the mind Which of God. Which is also language that Einstein used. Yes, and yes. of course Einstein most famously. This is not a new phenomenon. It's Physicists have been engaged with the God question deeply from its origins, basically in Pythagoreanism two and a half thousand years ago. So Pythagoras believed 
that the numbers were literally gods and that when we found mathematical relationships inherent in the world around us, that what we were discovering was, as it were, the true reality behind the material phenomenon. And this idea that the, the universe is underlaid by some kind of mathematical blueprint is really attributable to Pythagoras. And it's the vision that really gave, gave birth to modern physics, which effloresces into being, as we all know, in the 17th century. It, when I set out to write my book, I had no intention of writing about religion. I wanted to write a book about the cultural history of physics because I wanted to explain physics to my friends. And people kept coming up to me at dinner parties and saying, Margaret, you're studying physics. I bought this book, A Brief History of Time, and I can't get past chapter one. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. can, can you tell me a book about physics that I can actually understand? And I thought, my friends are smart. They're sophisticated people, but most of them are in the arts and humanities. And I thought, actually, I can't recommend a book to you about physics that you could genuinely understand because most books about physics that claim to be for the general public are really not comprehensible. No. I, I actually think there's a profusion of books now, and still, mm. even the best are not that readable. No. I mean, and I think what happens is that people buy one, they can't get through, they can't get past chapter one, and then they feel, oh, physics isn't for me, I just don't have that kind of a mind. And I don't believe this. And so when I set out to write my book, I thought, how can I write a book about physics that my friends will understand? And I thought about this and I thought, well, what's the problem here? And my view, after long thought, I came to the conclusion that the problem with most books about physics is that they tell you the answers and they focus on the answers, right. but they don't explain the questions and why the questions matter. And the questions, which could not be more exhilarating. Yes. So here's a simple one. When Copernicus said, it's the sun, not the earth, that's at the center of the universe. Basically, if you, if you look at the diagrams of the Copernican universe, it's, it's still a circular universe with the yellow dot in the middle, which has now replaced the blue dot of the earth. And you think, well, why does it matter whether it's the blue dot or the yellow dot in the center? And the reason it matters is because the shift from the medieval to the Copernican and ultimately Newtonian cosmology is it was a fundamental shift in how human beings saw themselves. So in the medieval universe, people saw themselves at the heart of an angel-filled universe with everything connected to God. In the Copernican and Newtonian universe, we ultimately became the Earth's position was a planet floating around a sun in a vast, empty void. So it's the, quest it's, the, it's the question that matters more than the answer in some ways. And so I thought to explain the answers that physicists give, I have to explain the questions and why the questions mm. matter. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. And then... Um, so I, I, yeah. I didn't... And what was interesting to me was... I had been a physics student and we had got no grounding in the history of science in our degrees. And I thought, well, if I'm going to explain the cultural history to my physics to my friends, I'd better find out a bit about the cultural history of my field myself. And I thought, oh, well, that's easy. I'll just read three or four books. And three 
I spent three, four years working on that book, and I think in the time I gave myself um, a master's degree in the history of science. And what I discovered was that at every era historians had written about the history of, of physics, that the God question was deeply there. And I realised, oh my gosh, this is a continuous thing, that the whole history of physics is allied with religious questions. Why hasn't that story been told? It is allied with religious questions. Um, and then interestingly, we get into the modern era where, um, as you say somewhere, you know, there's kind of this assumption that all that matters is matter. Mm-hmm. And we, we culturally in the West internalize that in many ways. And yet, especially now in the 21st century, mm-hmm. I don't know if the God question is out front, but the, mm-hmm. the language of God and, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about the God particle. I mean, there's, there's, there's terminology. Um, but also on the far frontiers of physics now, it's getting so fantastical. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you use, you know, the, the word, the language of blueprint, mm-hmm. uh, which is another kind of la- word that gets used now in the context of uh, theories which many physicists are convinced are absolutely real and we just have yet to prove it about parallel universes. You know, you, you have this idea that we are, we are just a hologram or some kind of projection of, you know, mm-hmm. of some... Uh, some base form of knowledge or intelligence out there. And then I, I feel like it, it still opens up back into these questions. Well, if we're a projection, then who's running the projector? If we're, mm-hmm. Right? It, it's, it's so interesting how uh, that creative interplay, in fact, continues and continues to evolve. Yes. Well, what we keep doing in the West, and particularly through the discourse of physics... Is, is coming back to what's generally called Platonism. It actually should be called Pythagoreanism, but it's usually called Platonism. <laughs> and, and that's the idea that the true reality is a set of ideal forms. And in the physics version of it, the ideal forms are basically mathematical forms. The true reality is that mathematical model in some sense behind the material phenomena and that the material manifestation is just some secondary and ultimately unimportant um, imperfect copy of the true reality which is these ideals which is now put in terms of the equations and I love mathematics and deeply believe in its validity for describing lots of physical phenomena, but I fundamentally reject Platonism. I believe in the validity and value and supremacy, ultimately, of embodied being. Of embodied being. I think we are first and foremost embodied beings, and we have minds, and we have, I think, the embodiment of of ourselves is the primary reality. And do you have this conversation with physicists? <laughs> um, not very often. Um, sometimes. Part of the problem is that Platonism is such in is so ascendant uh, in our time because, as you said, 
physics has become so incredibly successful. We, there's so much of the universe that we have described in mathematical terms. Mm-hmm. And so there's a huge resurgence of Platonism in and do you think that most of us, that, you know, as you say, many, most of us, and I absolutely include myself in this, don't on, only understand a fraction of what mm-hmm. physicists understand, but, but, do, but still we've, we've received a, a description of reality from physics. I mean, do you mm-hmm. think most of us are Platonists also without perhaps call, knowing that about ourselves, or is that more in the domain of scientists? Um, actually, I suspect most people are not Platonists um, because I think, Platonism does propose that the material world is secondary and insignificant. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's most people's experience of being. Pain is real. Um, And I think happiness is real. Emotionality is real. And I think people experience that. And I think my... Never done any polls, but no, we and we we uh, articulate and and sense reality through experience. Yes, rather than through equations. Yes, which is a language that mm. physicists and mathematicians mm. mathematicians possess. Mm. Well, the, the Platonist position comes. I'll, you know, it, it comes from Greek philosophy, and. It's a tradition of Greek philosophy that's very strong. It wasn't the only tradition in Greek philosophy initially, but it, it, it's a, it comes out of a dualist notion that the world is deeply divided into the, into the realm of matter right. and the realm of, of some sort of spirit and that the true reality is the immaterial spiritual aspect. And often among early Greek philosophers, there was a gender dimension to that. So women were affiliated with the matter and maleness was affiliated with the ideation and, as it were, immaterial, spiritualised aspect of the world. And Pythagoras, who happens to be one of my great heroes because he did invent the idea of mathematical, what became mathematical physics, also, to his discredit, um, attributed the mathematics with maleness or affiliated mathematics with maleness. And that affiliation has lasted in our culture for two and a half thousand years and still deeply permeates our society that in some sense mathematical thinking is inherently a masculine, not a feminine thing. And I think it's a huge problem that we have to get over. Mm-hmm. It's also there in this um, tension between you know, which, which actually recurs in many fields, uh, kind of the supremacy of hard science when that mm-hmm. gets invoked mm-hmm. over other soft things like mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. And, and when we use, it's ironic because when we use the word hard sciences, mm-hmm. that means the mathematical sciences mm-hmm. or the, math, the more hard a science is, the more mathematical it is, mm-hmm. which is totally ironic because mathematics is the least material or the least hard thing at all. It, it, I mean, hard, it, you know, it's the least solid thing. Right. No, I, I like it's that. It's, you said it's, it's, it's mystical in a sense. It's, yes. It began as something mystical, and there's mm. a sense in which it remains mm. this. I, I mean, I, I think the connotation 
of hardness is comes from the historical notion that the mathematical aspects of the world are the most unchanging. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's the notion that things can change, substance can change into different aspects of itself, but at the heart of it there are these mathematical relationships that are eternal and that will never change. So, you know, four mountains will, cr- will eventually crumble, four civilizations will fall, four apples will rot, four of anything will eventually disappear. Right. But four is, in this philosophy, four is forever. So four, fourness, in some sense, is seen as a solid part of reality that will never disappear, and thus the mathematical relationships are seen as the eternal grounded part. But is that true? What is the origin of fourness? What is the origin of the mathematical equations that physicists discover? Do they have a transcendent existence? I don't believe they do. And that question itself isn't really pursued, is it, by physicists and mathematicians? It's not pursued by physicists per se, but it's one of the most... Um, abiding questions in the history of Western philosophy. And, in, and indeed, um, it, it has activated... Uh, it, it activated all the, the people, the great founders of the scientific revolution, Galileo, Newton and Descartes. Um, all of them were very interested in this question. What is the status of mathematical relationships? And... Basically, they were Platonists. But the reason that Platonism ultimately came to catch on in the Western world, it was, it was actually invented by Pythagoras in you know, 400 BC, but it didn't really take off as a philosophy um, in the West until the advent of the scientific revolution in the 16th, 17th century. Why did this philosophy that had been around for so long suddenly get going? And the reason, this is what I propose in my book, Pythagoras' Trousers, is because what happened was that Platonism or Pythagoreanism was Christianized. So what happened was this idea that there is this transcendent realm of number of right. numbers got associated with the Christian deity. Right. So well, Galileo said what? Mathematics is the language in which the universe was written. Yes. Yeah. And so my view is that one of the ways of understanding the scientific revolution is that it represents the ultimate, it represents the triumph ultimately of Plato's ideas over Aristotle's ideas, but it happened through the prism of Christianity. So Christianity and the idea that God is the great math, God is a mathematical creator is foundational to the scientific revolution, which is why claims that science and religion are fundamentally opposed is just absolute nonsense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So let's talk about this way that you are, you know, I didn't, uh, I want to, one of the things I loved, you know, you you actually studied physics, but you became a a science journalist, um, and one of the things you, you know, a, a kind of driving uh, curiosity 
um, that you've described from your earliest life was, you know, what, what do scientists know that we'd all like to know? I guess you described <laughs> that when you talked about why you, why you wrote mm-hmm. your books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like what you're doing now, which brings all kinds of parts of you together, mm-hmm. including your, your sister who studied art, um, is this Institute for Figuring. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the LA Weekly called what the Institute for Figuring a kind of rogue physics laboratory, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is interesting because you've also thought a lot about the history of outsider scientists, and we mm-hmm. kind of think of this as a priestly class, and mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, there's, it's always been more fluid. So I find that interesting because I've kind of come mm-hmm. to think of you as an outsider scientist, and <laughs> you've also said that outsider science is a new kind of folk art. Mm-hmm. And you're really, you're really, um, you're making that real through this Institute for Figuring. Um, and, you know, you talked about the reality for you of embodied being. Um, and one way you, you've described what the Institute for Figuring is doing is helping uh, non-scientists, ordinary people, learn the language of mathematics mm-hmm. by experiencing it in embodied ways. Mm-hmm. So it's really fascinating. And there's a there's a bit of a story there. Um, well, just just talk about how that how this came to be. About ten years ago, as a science, I had been working for a long time as a science journalist and science writer, and my great passion was to explain and bring the beauty and wonder of science to the wider public. And I became very frustrated by the fact that as a science journalist, I was having trouble convincing magazine and newspaper science editors to let me write about certain things that I thought were fascinating. And I came... I'm a huge lover in of the beauty and the poetic enchantments in science and mathematics. I think most scientists, particularly most physicists, go into the field because they're absolutely captivated by the beauty of it. Yes. And I felt very frustrated that the beauty, of, the sheer beauty of science wasn't something that was being articulated. And I thought... I want. I think we need to have a new kind of... Inst- I think there needs to be a framework in which the beauty and poetic wonder of science can be foregrounded. And so I decided to start an organisation whose mission is to enhance the public understanding of science. How, how did you come up with the term figuring? It's not a common word. Well, Chrissy and I talk a lot about the word figuring. Chrissy's your, your twin Chrissy's sister. Chrissy's my twin yeah. sister. Um, be, because... Figures are numbers. Figures are scientific diagrams. We all artists do figurative drawing. We all have a figure embod- as a body, and we figure things out. So, figuring mm. is a word mm. that immediately connotes art, science, mathematics, and cognition. Mm. So, as soon as I had the idea for an organisation, the the thought popped into my head: it should be called the Institute for Figuring, mm. and its acronym IFF is the logical symbol for if and only if. <laughs> um, and a lot of what... You're actually working with 
geometry, a lot of what you're doing is mm-hmm. working with, which is that embodied physical, be- kind of evidently beautiful to, to ordinary human senses aspect of mathematics, which we don't necessarily mm-hmm. think of when we think of equations, which we can't mm-hmm. understand and didn't mm-hmm. learn in school. I mean, it's so interesting. You talk about uh, or, um, objects that are part of life, and in fact, many of them very playful and whimsical and intriguing, like soccer balls and origami and sponges and mm-hmm. snowflakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, just in that, it you remind us that we encounter these forms of mathematics and actually work with them mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. That don't think of it that way. Yes. The, one of the Institute for Figuring's primary goals is to give people an experience of maths and science. So instead of having them just sit passively and listen to a lecture by a scientist, which, which may actually be absolutely fabulous, and that um, we want them, people to have an experience of making and doing science for themselves. So the project that we're most well known for is the Crochet Coral Reef Project, which is all based on the fact that corals and sponges, sea sponges and lots of other reef organisms, all those frilly crenellated structures that you see are actually biological manifestations of a kind of geometry called hyperbolic geometry. And although brainless corals can make hyperbolic forms literally in the bodies of their beings, it's very difficult for humans to make models of this. And in fact, the best way to do it is with crochet. And it was a scientist who discovered that, right? It it was a mathematician. A mathematician who discovered that crochet was the best way to demonstrate this geometric principle. Yes. Dr. Dana Taimina, a Latvian mathematician who had grown up knitting and crocheting, she heard about this issue that mathematicians understood theoretically a hyperbolic surfaces, but they didn't really have a, a way of making models of it. So can I just let, so there's just a little and there's a little bit of a lesson in Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry, and so what we think of as the the axioms that we learn mm-hmm. is really about flat surfaces, and the hyperbolic surfaces are well, they're 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 also curved surfaces. The mm-hmm. non-Euclidean is curved or how would you describe, just in very layman's terms, yes. what, you're, what we're working with here? Well, the easy way to think about this is that we all study at school a kind of geometry called Euclidean geometry, which is basically the geometry of a flat plane. A piece and two of, points between the line and the angles of a yes. triangle. Yeah. And it turns out that there, there are three different two-dimensional geometric structures. So the flat plane is one, and everybody in this audience actually knows about another geometric surface, and that's, imagine the surface of the Earth, the surface of a sphere. So think about a beach ball. It's a a surface, just think about the skin of a beach ball, nothing inside. So that's a a two-dimensional surface that has a fundamentally different geometry to the flat plane, apart from anything. It's it's finite. Mm -hmm. So a flat plane can be regarded as a surface with no curvature at all. A sphere can be thought of as a surface with positive curvature. And so you think, well, if it's positive curvature, is it a possibility that you could have negative curvature? And it turns out that 
the swooping crenellated forms that corals make is their embodiments of negative curvature space, which has come to be called hyperbolic space, hyperbolic geometry. Now, what does it mean to talk about a negative curvature space? That's, there are lots of different ways of mathematically describing it, and none of them are immediately obvious. Took, mathematicians spent hundreds of years trying to prove that anything like this was possible. But one way you can think about it is it's like a geometric equivalent of the negative numbers. And negative num- the discovery of negative numbers was a big event in the history of mathematics. So just as you have zero positive numbers and negative numbers, so you can have zero curvature space, positive curvature space, and negative curvature space. And they have d- each of these three different spaces has different properties. So here's a simple one that everyone will understand. On the surface, on a Euclidean surface, the angles of a triangle always add up to 180 degrees. On the surface of a sphere, the angles of a triangle add up to more than 180 degrees. And on a hyperbolic surface, they add up to less than 180 degrees. So these three different geometries have fundamentally different properties. And how was it that crochet uh, was a way to illustrate that hyperbolic space? Well, it, it turns out, before Dr. Taimina um, in, realized that she could do this with crochet, the great geometer William Thurston, who was at Cornell, had, had actually made a small model of hyperbolic space using thin circular strips of paper. But it was very hard to make these models. They're very fragile, and you can really only do a tiny bit. And Dr. Taimina realised that she could simulate the making of these little, circ- these little paper strips with knitting or crochet. And the first one she made was actually knitted. But you get too many stitches on the needles, so she realised crochet is the best thing to do. So what was astonishing about this is that mathematicians had had before this a, th- an ob- a theoretical understanding of this object, the hyperbolic plane, but they didn't have a way, really, of representing it. So imagine situations like this. Imagine you lived in a Euclidean world. Everything's ang- straight, right angles. And then one day a mathematician comes along and said, oh, we've discovered there's this new thing. It's called a sphere. And it's got these two poles, these North Pole and the South Pole, and lines come back on themselves. And we've got this theoretical understanding of it, but we don't know what it looks like. And you all ponder this for a few years. And then somebody comes along and says, I've got a model of a sphere. And they show you a beach ball. And it's like, oh, my gosh, now I can understand what this sphere thing is because I can see it. So what Dana did was she basically gave us a way of having a model of this mathematical construct. So it didn't invent new mathematics, but she gave us a physical representation of it. And that's a remarkable thing. Because when you can see it and feel it and hold it in your hands, you can get a sense of its visceral being. And you can actually stitch mathematical theorems onto the surface of these hyperbolic surfaces that are crocheted and, and demonstrate to students that, that the angles of a triangle don't add up to 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. And you know, I studied hyperbolic geometry in math class at university, and we just had to take it as this theoretical thing. Right. It, and it's so powerful. And you brought this 
little. I bought one. Tiny. So, okay, can I just confess mm. that I, I'm, I'm mm. trying to follow what you're saying, and I feel a little bit like, <laughs> well, I, I feel a little bit like I did when I tried to read A Brief History of Time. Yeah. Um, but well, you sort of need to see. Yeah, you, you need right. the visuality. And, and people to... listening on the radio won't be able to see this beautiful, yes. bright. I don't know what you know. This, this is that is that part from the Reef Project. Yeah, but it, I'll I'll tell you an example that everybody in this audience will have seen, mm-hmm. and that your listeners will know. Think of a calla lily. Think of what? A calla lily. You know the the flowers that you the Virgin Mary holds, a, li- a lily. Yeah. Actually, no, it's not a calla lily that she holds. It's a different kind of lily. But think a calla lily is the, the swirling lily that sort of wraps around like in a spiral. Actually, there were versions of them in the film Avatar, in that fabulous blue, mm, you know, in that fabulous mm, forest mm, on mm, the Pandora world. Mm. They walk through a forest and there are these swirling, curling flowers. Those flowers are actually making hyperbolic surfaces. And I once met a young physicist who was doing her PhD in how flowers form these hyperbolic structures. So a lot of things in nature make these hyperbolic forms, and corals with their wavy, curly... Think about what you know about a coral reef. Right. Those forms are hyperbolic surfaces. Well, and so I have to say, um, I I did look at images of pictures Mm. online, and there's a wonderful presentation you gave that that I know we'll put up on our website where you go through some of the Mm. the project, the Coral Reef Project. And it's just... L- the you know that it's la- it's lavishly beautiful and wild and mm-hmm. actually one thing that I mean some of the things that I heard you say about this that helped me understand is you know you said that you are you the idea is to literally embody embody ideas so that you can mm-hmm. play with them mm-hmm. you know which is a phrase we use playing with ideas mm-hmm. but there's something so whimsical and something else that really helped me is you noted that you and your sister loved Cat in the Hat mm-hmm. and those these colors mm. these wild colors mm. which are also found in nature right? mm-hmm. i mean which nature mm. does better than we do but well the crochet coral reef project is um a project where we're literally making a coral reef a huge and sometimes the these get to be really huge installations we work chrissy and i work with communities around the world um as we're doing here in Minneapolis with the Minneapolis Institute of the Arts to collectively working with lots of people. We teach lots of people how to do these crochet hyperbolic forms, which immediately look like coral reefs. Because whenever you do this kind of... Whenever you make frills, it tends to look like corals. Frills, right. Frill. Basically, right. corals are frills. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're, they're sort of nature's fancy work is the way we like to think of it. And when you you can easily crochet these forms that look like you know think about a brain coral, it's this frilly crenellated surface, and you can easily crochet them with this method methodology that Dana invented. And when you get hundreds or thousands of them together, you can form them into um, vast coral coralline landscapes. And we start Chrissy and I started the project in two thousand and five. Um, about the time when scientists were beginning to realise that coral reefs around the world were being devastated by global warming. 
And we grew up in the state of Queensland, Australia, which is where the Great Barrier Reef is. Mm. And we thought, well, we could crochet a coral reef and invite a few other people to join us in this. And we could do a collective art project that also brought attention to the plight of coral reefs and the fact that global warming is real. It's not something in the distant future. It's here and now. And we joked to ourselves at the time that if the Great Barrier Reef ever died out, our crochet reef would be something to remember it by. Mm. In 2005, that was a joke. Just this week, NOAA scientists have released a report warning that this year may be the worst coral bleaching and die-off in the history of of humanity. And scientists are talking about the very real possibility that coral reefs might actually die out if we don't stop putting so much CO2 into the atmosphere. And you also have some of the project is represents that, that bleaching out, the color is gone, right? The white the white crochet. Yes, we have um, crocheted two bleached reefs and bleaching coral bleaching is the phenomena when corals get bleached it's a sign that they're stressed they have these little microorganisms living in them with help which help them to feed and give, help to give them the color and when they get stressed because the water gets too hot or there's pollutants they expel these little microorganisms and they lose a lot of their color and go white right. and it means that they're sick and if the conditions turn to normal the reefs gain back their color and can grow healthy and if the, if they don't if the conditions stay bad the bleaching gets permanent and they die so a bleached reef is an indication that a reef is sick and so we've made two invocations of this our bleached reefs one of which is here at the Minneapolis Institute of the Arts on display at the moment um, you know, last week I was with um, Mary Oliver, the poet, mm-hmm. who doesn't give interviews very much, and um, and she talked a little bit about how distressed she is at the state of the earth. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was, it's hard to hear that from Mary Oliver because so much mm-hmm. of her poetry is about mm-hmm. the beauty and grandeur and mystery of the natural world. Mm-hmm. And she talked a little bit about how she doesn't you know, she said other people write about that distress mm-hmm. and what's going wrong. Um, but I've chosen for mm-hmm. my contribution to be just making people aware of the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking about that when I was thinking about this project because, you know, this is also a different approach to science communication because we, we do get these devastating mm-hmm. news reports. Uh, but it's very abstract, mm-hmm. right? And it's devastating without being real. And I, it seems to me that, that you are actually mm-hmm. bringing people into some kind of contact with the notion of coral reefs as embodied and mm-hmm. vividly beautiful. One of the things about the reef project that I feel is important is that it's a constructive response to a devastating problem. I think most people... as I am, are completely freaked out about the problem of global warming. What can we do? Uh, Can we do anything? And the reef project, the Crochet Coral Reef Project, is a metaphor, and it goes like this. If you look at real corals, they are built... A head of coral is built by thousands of individual coral polyps working together. 
Each coral polyp is a tiny, insignificant little critter with almost no power of its own. <laughs> but when billions of corals, coral polyps come together, they can build the Great Barrier Reef, the largest thing on, living thing on Earth and the first living thing that you can see from outer space. The crochet coral reef is a human analogue of that. These huge coral reef installations that we build with communities are built by hundreds and sometimes thousands of people working together. So the project capitulates in human action the power and greatness of what corals themselves are doing. Mm. And I think the metaphor of the project is look what we can do together. We humans, each of us, are like a coral polyp. Individually, we're insignificant and probably powerless. But together, I believe we can do things. And I think the metaphor of the project is we are all corals now. <laughs> we are all at risk. Mm -hmm. But if we act together, I believe we do have power. And the project shows that what humans can do when they make an act as a group, not as individual egos. And I think it is also empowering that there is beauty mm. and playfulness mm. in the act of creating, in that response. Yes, the, the project gives people an environment. In the context of the project, they can think about this terrible problem that we face on planet Earth, but at the same time that they are doing a pleasurable activity. It's very pleasurable to do handicrafts like crochet. It's mm -hmm. meditative. And you're producing beautiful things. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's a truly constructive response to a truly devastating situation. And I think we urgently need that. We, we will not solve global warming and ocean acidification if we just freak ourselves out and end up huddling in corners in fear. We must find ways to collectively act and constructively and positively act. So in just about five minutes, I want to open this up. Um, uh, is another subject we could have spent half an hour on uh, that you've written and reflected on in a very unique way is... Um, Space and the history of our sense of space and the mm. meaning of space and how cyberspace... And I, I mean, I have mm. to confess, I'd never actually pondered the space mm. part of the mm -hmm. cyberspace notion. Mm -hmm. is kind of a modern... It's a new way we're playing with that idea and also corrective. I kind of feel you mm. feeling a, a bit of a corrective to some of the extreme mm. places mm. we took, scientific places we mm. took. So can you just say a little bit about that? Well... My second book is called The Pearly Gates of Cyberspace, but the real title of the book is the subtitle. It's a history of space from Dante to the Internet. And so the book traces the history of Western thinking about space from the Middle Ages to the Internet age. And I'm interested in this book in the ways in which as our thinking about space changes, so do our ideas about the conception of the self. 
So a simple way of thinking of this is that for medieval people prior to you know, the scientific revolution, people saw themselves as twofold. They had a body and a soul. And each of those aspects of human selfhood had a space of being. So the body existed in the physical material cosmos and the soul existed in the realm of the afterlife, which was so beautifully articulated by Dante in the Divine Comedy with the three realms of heaven, hell and purgatory. With the coming into being of Newtonian cosmology, our conception of space became purely physical. The physical space became came to be seen as infinite. And kind of a, and a spiritual void. Well, thus there was literally no room left. There was no space left right. to put the soul. And so the whole idea of the, the notion of a soul got written out of the realm of reality because we reconceived space in such a way that we, we could no longer conceive of space as anything but a physical thing. And I think this is the fundamental trauma at the heart of the modern Western world. Mechan- Usually mechanism is blamed for this psycho-spiritual trauma that the West is suffering. That we, It's usually said to be because we reconceived of the world as a mechanical system. I think it's because we reconceived the world as a spatial system which no longer had any way of describing the psycho, the psychological or mm. spiritual aspects of our being, there was literally no place to put that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and cyberspace is kind of a place where is a space of being. Well, to me, what's interesting about cyberspace is that, and it's now in the last few years become so um, present in our lives. You know, we do so much online. We're in chat rooms. We're in video games. I think generations of people brought up experiencing literally a sense of themselves existing or being and acting in a virtual universe, I think that generation will not accept pure materialism. Right. It's it's huge that we... And and especially for new generations. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. when we first began to speak, we talked about this fundamental theme in the history of science, which is, you know, what is reality and whose assertions about that are more mm-hmm. are taken more seriously. And it's in this generation that we have actually that we actually have this robust vocabulary of different mm-hmm. levels of reality which are mm-hmm. all real mm-hmm. reality and mm-hmm. virtual reality. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think this is the great revolution of the cyber era, of the internet era, that actually, ironically... um, Well, I think that the coming into being of virtual realities is is representing that reality is not just matter in motion through physical space. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. (laughs) The, The question... A question is... Will the difference between so I think we now actually, in a sense, are reconceiving medieval dualism. Medieval people consider consider themselves in some ways to have two realities: the reality of the the body and the reality of the soul, which was very real to them yeah. because they you know they felt they were going to go to heaven or hell. We now, with us with the internet and cyberspace experience that multiplicity of reality. Our physical body's in the chair, but I'm here in the virtual world playing the video game or in Second Life, whatever it is you're doing. 
so you, in some sense, are a multiple being, the, the body and the self. Right. The, the, the difference between the contemporary cyber version of it and the medieval version of it is that the cyber version of it is untethered from any notion of morality. And I do think we, we need to think about it. And that is our work, right? That's part of the work of... Because this is such a new sphere, do, do we manage to mm. create that mm. a moral sensibility in yeah. cyberspace? Yes, when, when cyberspace as a construct first started to come into being about 20 years ago, there were a lot of people talking about how because it was virtual, because it was, as it were, engaged on the level of the self, that it was ipso facto going to be, as it were, a powerful force for, for moral enrichment and improvement. I have to say I see little evidence of that. <laughs> Let's um, invite you into the conversation. I think there are some uh, roving microphones, so if you have a question, yeah, raise your hand. I, I find uh, the power of the metaphor of the, the coral reef very compelling and, and what you say about embodied um, experiences of mathematics um, in thinking about solving a problem as large as global warming and using that metaphor of course in nature uh, all of the millions of microorganisms somehow magically but not magically mm-hmm. um, know to create under the right conditions mm-hmm. temperature chemistry mm-hmm. um, Ducks, birds that fly in formation magically mm-hmm. know how to do that. But, of mm-hmm. course, there are some conditions. I'm not mm-hmm. an ornithologist, so I don't know what they are. I'm wondering if you've given any thought to, so what would those conditions be for human beings in solving a problem such as global warming? Um, we, we seem to have a problem <laughs> working together. <laughs> and so what would be the conditions um, my, my own guess, it has something to do with minimizing egos. Um, but beyond that, I, I haven't a clue. And I wonder from a scientist mm-hmm. perspective whether you have any clues to what that might be. Um, I'll answer that question not from the perspective of my engagement with science, but with my, from my perspective as being a human who was raised in Catholicism. We, I believe, are all called upon to start thinking about communal well-being and not just our own well-being. And to me, that is the fundamental religious message of Christianity, is that we, we should think about the good of the whole human ecosystem and not just ourselves. And... I believe that we're not going to solve problems like global warming and particularly the the problem of global warming until we start focusing on issues of social justice. I do not believe that technology alone can deliver solutions, although I do believe technologies will be a big part of, of the solution. I think that we need to encourage systems... That, in, that encourage equity and 
which means all people having access to certain comforts and basic living conditions, but also all people having a sense that the, uni- the world is finite and that none of us have, should be using very much. Good evening. You have framed uh, much of your study and thought on Western thought, and mm-hmm. I was wondering if you've done any study of physics in non-Western thought, or if you, what that body of literature would look like, or mm-hmm. what non-Western thought would be on some of these same topics. I haven't um, myself done any studies of physics or science in non-Western cultures or contexts. Um, And I think that's something that I welcome hearing more of. There are people now beginning to do write such studies, um, particularly looking at the history of the relationship between Judaism and science and Islam and science. And I think we do need more such books. Hello. Um, I was so struck um, when you were talking about how, it, or this question of is, is math unchanging or are, do numbers have a transcendent existence and you seem to fall on the side of no. Mm-hmm. It, it reminded me of the um, idea that many people seem to take comfort in that God is unchanging mm-hmm. and... Um, so I just would like to mm-hmm. hear you talk about, is there anything that's unchanging? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I find change hopeful, but mm-hmm. also really terrifying and mm-hmm. painful. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yes, please. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you're, absol- you're absolutely right that one of the reasons why um, mathematical science did get accepted in Western culture in the 17th century was precisely because it could be allied with the notion of an unchanging God. So the idea that God created the universe according to a set of mathematical principles makes sense in the con- when you have a concept of an unchanging God. So Christianity meshed very well with that Pythagorean view. So your deeper question is, is there anything unchanging in the world? This is a one of the fundamental... This has been one of the great debates in the history of Western thought. It goes back to the pre-Socratic philosophers, the primary ones being um, Heraclites, who believed that change was real and a fundamental part of reality, and Parmenides, who believed that at the core of reality there was something unchanging. And Plato essentially adopted the Parmenidean view that there is an unchanging core of reality. And Aristotle, his great philosophical rival, believed in the Heraclitan view that change is real. And that remains a fundamental question 
for philosophers and scientists, particularly physicists. Most physicists, or many physicists, I think, would tell you that there is an un- today would tell you that they believe there is an unchanging core of reality, which is these mathematical equations. A lot of humanities scholars reject that view, and one of the tensions between the sciences and the humanities in the 20th century has been over this debate. Will that debate be solved in my lifetime or in the lifetime of anyone in this room? I seriously doubt it. I suspect that in 2,000 years we'll be still debating that. I have my own personal views, but I think everybody's entitled to have their their own ideas. I, I fall onto the Heracliton view. I think the change is real. Um, you know, I've had a, some conversations in the last few years with physicists, mm-hmm. um, especially with Brian Greene, mm-hmm. who's one of these people who uh, who will essentially say that you know that in ways we don't yet understand and can't grasp and and cannot perceive with our five senses the laws of physics are determining everything that mm-hmm. we do and that mm-hmm. it sense, our sense of self and our sense of control and of choice mm-hmm. is uh, an, illu- an illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but what strikes me in that kind of uh, perception is that it's, it's really just reinventing kind of the mm-hmm. Calvinist notion of predestination, mm-hmm. right? Like the laws of physics mm-hmm. are as tyrannical yes. as the most primitive God. Yes. And you start to wonder mm-hmm. if, if the laws of physics, if, you know, if we're really just, this one thing you've tried, we're changing the terminology. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, this is the fundamental problem with the deterministic view of science is if everything's predetermined, then there's no such thing as free will. And why is that a problem? The, the, the answer, the reason why it's a problem is that if there's no free will, then we cannot be responsible for our acts. And this is, this is again, it's a fundamental issue of Christianity that the fun, the, basically the fundamental claim of Christianity is that you have, a, you have a will and you can decide how you act. And if the world is purely deterministic and you have no free will, then there is, then there is no concept really of morality mm-hmm. because we're all just machines. Well, and I, I mean, Christianity and every spiritual tradition mm-hmm. with different vocabulary and different mm-hmm. practices is driving at that, that capacity we have mm-hmm. to grow and change and shape our, mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and shape our presence in the world. Mm. Yes, I mean, I, I think that the, the deterministic view basically turns us into not immoral but amoral beings. We have no moral choice. And I think most people cannot accept that, and nor should they. I believe we do have a moral choice, and we must... And, and so the, the problem, if you disagree with Brian Greene, is... What do you think the laws of physics, if they're not the cosmic blueprint, what are they? Yeah, right. Um, Right. But also, if you... Well, can... can The the question then also becomes, can the laws of physics account for everything? Can they... Can they account for our subjectivity? And that's... I don't 
believe that they can describe subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what did you say when we first started speaking? You know, that pain is real, that mm-hmm. happiness is real, that beauty, that we, these perceptions we have. Um, I don't think physics even tries to describe mm-hmm. those things. Um, it's also very uninteresting if we if we just decide that they're right. So what do we do? Just mm. go home? I mean... Mm. <laughs> yes. 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 I mean, this, this issue of the laws of nature and subjectivity was really a central question in the scientific revolution. And it was why the idea of a mathematical universe was so hard to for Christians to accept the idea because it was realized very early on that it would that it, it could threaten the notion of morality and free will. Mm-hmm. That was why it was such a problematic notion in in the early seventeenth century. And that was why Descartes, who was completely activated by this question, asked himself, what can the laws of nature, what what can mathematical laws of nature describe? And Descartes' answer to the question was, the laws, the physical laws of nature can describe matter in motion through space and time. That's what he called the res extensa. But he said, there is another aspect of beingness which is what he called the res cogitans, the realm of thoughts, feelings, emotions, and spiritual experience. And Descartes said, these these are two aspects of reality. They're both legitimate. They're both foundational. And the laws, the mathematical laws of nature, have nothing to say with the realm of what we would call the human psyche and the human soul. But in the 18th century... champions of mechanism said we don't need that spiritual realm anymore, we'll just get rid of all of that and the the, the totality of reality is just the realm of matter in motion the res extensa so this is why Cartesian, Descartes is blamed for the problem Right. but Descartes not the problem the problem is that that we rejected the other half of Cartesian dualism. That's interesting, because we think... I, I mean, I've said recently, like, I think Descartes has a lot to answer for because we can't just reduce ourselves to mm. thinking, mm. But, but what you're pointing out is that he was responding to a different, a, a different way of dividing ourselves up. Descartes was trying to rescue the situation, and he had a brilliant... He, he, Descartes was basically... He, came, he lived at the end of the 16th, very early 17th century, so he was brought up in, with a medieval worldview, essentially. And he was trying to say, how can we save this dualistic phenomena but also have a mathematically-based science? Mm-hmm. So he said, what can the math do? It can describe the physical world. That's fabulous. What a wonderful project that is. We have this other part of our beings, which is our psychosocial, and, and we should say all the psychological aspects of our being are in, contained in Descartes' res extensia. The problem only came later when people wanted to say the totality of reality is what the, what the mathematical laws of nature can describe. That's a philosophical claim. It's not a scientific claim. Nobody can prove to you 
that, that, that there is only matter in motion. So what has happened with the modern world is that we've lost, unlike the medievals, we don't really have a language for discussing ourself, the selfness of ourselves, in relation to the material world. So, the, you know, we've got neurolo- neuro- neurologists and neurophysicists and neuroscientists are now trying to explain all psychological phenomena in terms of physiological things. Right. Now, I believe you could. there's a lot of neurological correlates to psychological states. But I claim, as the philosopher David Chalmers does, that the experience of redness, the experience of pain is fundamental and it is just as much of a fundamental phenomena as the neurons firing and the circuitry going and the neurotransmitters. Right. So this this is the foundational philosophical question in relation to modern science. Um, is there one more question? You're a very quiet group. Maybe up here or whoever gets there first. Uh, so, there, oh, so there you are. Okay. Sorry. You said that you innately had um, like this physics, math kind of thing going on, and you have a twin sister mm-hmm. who went towards art. Was it like a yin-yang, two sides of the coin thing? Just curious. <laughs> um, I don't know why it happened like that. Chrissy and I don't really see art and science as being so radically different. Um, I think we, we, we both see them as both being incredibly aesthetically beautiful phenomena and fascinating and I'm not really sure how to answer the question. (laughs) I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being Today in a Public Conversation at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. Sorry, I can do that again. At the Minneapolis Institute of Arts with science writer and Institute of Figuring creator and curator Margaret Wertheim. So, um... I um I always like this this fact that light can be a particle or a wave mm-hmm. depending on what question you ask mm-hmm. of it. Um, as kind of an an analogy, to, mm-hmm. a kind of kind of a a way of demonstrating, I think something we all also experience that contradictory re- mm-hmm. explanations of reality can mm-hmm. simultaneously be true. Mm-hmm. And I just want to read something quite beautiful that you wrote. Um, Wave-particle duality is a core feature of our world. Or rather, we should say, it is a core feature of our mathematical descriptions of our world. But what is critical to note here is that however ambiguous our images, the universe itself remains whole and is manifestly not fracturing Mm -hmm. into schizophrenic shards. It is this tantalizing wholeness in the thing itself that drives physicists onward like an eternally beckoning light that seems so teasingly near, yet is always out of reach. Mm-hmm. It's very beautiful. Do you say anything about that thought? 
yes, the physics for the past century has had this dualistic way of describing the world, one in terms of waves, which is usually conceived of as a continuous phenomena, and one in terms of particles, which is usually conceived of as a discrete or sort of digitised phenomena. And so quantum mechanics gives us the particle, as it were, discrete description, and general relativity gives us the wave-like continuous description and general relativity operates at the cosmological scale and quantum mechanics operates so brilliantly at the subatomic scale. And these two theories don't currently mathematically mesh. So the great hope of physics for the last 80 or so years has been can we find a unifying framework that will combine general relativity and quantum mechanics into one mathematical synthesis. And some people believe that that's what string theory can be. And it's often when contemporary physicists write about the world, they talk about this as being a fundamental problem for reality. But it's not a fundamental problem for reality. (laughs) It's a fundamental problem for human beings. The universe is just getting on with it. And and so I think it brings to the forefront the the question that we've been talking about a lot in this discussion is what is the status of our mathematical descriptions of reality? The universe isn't schizophrenic. It's not having a problem. (laughs) We're having a problem. And I don't think it means that there's anything wrong with what physicists are doing. Quantum mechanics and general relativity have both been demonstrated to be true in their domains of expertise to 20 decimal places of experimentation. That's a degree of success which is mind-blowing and awe-inspiring. But the fact that these two great, fabulously functional descriptions don't fit together means we haven't by any means learned all we've got to know about the world. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've, um, I think you've pointed at this, but I want to, I want to um, explicitly go here with you. You know, you you've said that you don't think neuroscience is going to is also finally going to have a theory of everything that explains mm-hmm. us to ourselves. It explains happiness mm-hmm. and love and mm-hmm. pain, and why we do what we do, or whether we have a choice to do it. Um, you've said, but you've said you think there is something more that remains that will remain but mm-hmm. i also want to say you've spoken a lot and very movingly about your catholic about mm-hmm. that legacy of catholicism but you mm-hmm. also are atheist is that correct now i've, I've heard you say that um i i no i'm not an atheist okay um what you have to be careful what you say because it's it, yes. eter- it has eternal life on it has eternal life on life and and you know when I was preparing for this interview, Krista, I thought I know this question's going to come up, I know it's going to come up, and what am I going to say? Well, uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I don't need you to declare yourself unless you want to, but I I want to say very okay. publicly I am not an atheist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, All right. So what is my beliefs? Um, and I'd like to put it this way. 
I don't know that I believe in the existence of God in the Catholic sense. But my favourite book is The Divine Comedy. And at the end of The Divine Comedy, Dante pierces the skin of the universe and comes face to face with the love that moves the sun and the other stars. I believe that there is a love that moves the sun and the other stars. I believe in Dante's vision. And so in some sense, perhaps I could be said to believe in God. And I think part of the problem with the concept of are you an atheist or not is that our conception of what divinity means has become so trivialised and banal that I think it's almost impossible to answer the question with, without dogma. And I think it's a very... I'm very, very saddened by the fact that militant atheism has become so to the fore of our society. I think it's destructive and unhelpful and I don't think it does science any service. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I hear you saying also that um, the language of God itself is... I mean, it's like the language of, for a lot of really important things is, gets ruined. You know, we turn it into cliche or we fight mm. about it. Um, but but so so if, if, whether you use that language or not, you know, I I mean I think you just you talked about this love behind you. You know what? I I almost feel like with your history, with mm-hmm. the and the history you've delved into, our human history of science, um, that you don't speak about the God of religion, but you almost you know you you speak about a beyond that is somehow kind of a third way behind the mm-hmm. God we've thought about. Mm-hmm. And who is discredited in some ways mm-hmm. by us, mm-hmm. um, or the cold, hard materialism of the scientific worldview? Mm-hmm. Well, one way I think we can understand the God question in relation to science is this: that prior to the coming into being of modern science the Christian conception of God, God had two functions. God was the creator of the universe, but he was first and foremost the redeemer of mankind. And with the coming into being of modern science, God's position as redeemer got shoved into the background and all of the questions and the public discussion became about God the creator. And that was why Darwinism was so critical, because it appeared to challenge the idea of God as the creator of man. I think, and and in Christian theology, the critical function of God is not that he created the universe. It's his role as as the redeemer. And we, I think, in the West, the modern West, we focus so much on the debate about the creative function of God that outside of theological circles, we, we don't seem to be able to discuss, as it were, the concept of redemption. Right. And I think we need to be able to discuss that. And I don't know how we can do it. I think we need to start 
thinking about that. Redemption and redemptive is actually a <clears throat> wonderful word to think about in the context of, I don't know, this question of how we rise to the occasion of mm. climate change. Mm. Exactly. I mean, I think redemption, you know, doesn't ha- you don't have to believe in an idea of original sin. I don't think that humans are innately sinful, but I think we we all make mistakes, every single one of us, and collectively we're making massive mistakes. Um, and and the question is, how can we how can we, we redeem ourselves in the sense of making amends and. Catholicism traditionally talks about this through the language of a soul and its relationship to God. But one thing that we forget about Christianity is that it was prior to the emergence of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, all those sorts of psychological dynamics were also part of theology. And in a sense the coming into being of modern psychotherapy was partly propelled by a desire to fulfil in a scientific and rigorous way um, to be able to talk about issues of human failings and, and also healing. I mean, one way you can read the Divine Comedy is it's not just the journey of a soul towards God, it's the journey of a man as a psychological being realising his own failure and coming to terms with it. So it's a journey of psychoanalysis, of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge believer in the value of psychotherapy because I do think we, we are all failed. We are all f- failing p- beings, but we can also find ways to come to terms with our failings and hopefully rise above them, and that is one of the roles of psychotherapy. So it's one of the ways we have, along with our spiritual traditions, of addressing inner reality as something that is substantial and (laughs) real. (laughs) Well, one one way you can look at this is in, in the early 18th century, the philosopher John Locke made basically the claim. He said, so now we've got this fabulous new science of the material world and ourselves as embodied beings. And Locke predicted that humans would eventually need a science of mind. And that's what Freud actively thought that what he was doing was developing a science of mind. And neuroscience is now trying to have a science of mind too. And and I agree with John Locke we do need a science of mind. And I think it will be a science that cannot be reduced to pure materiality. I think we can find interesting things from studying neurophysiology, but we still need a science of mind, not just of brain. Well, Margaret Wertheim, thank you so much. Thank you all for coming.